They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. This is the very word of God. All right, guys. Well, we continue our study in the book of Ezekiel. We're going to take a look this morning um, through that passage that Caleb just read for us at the end of chapter 22. Um, But I want us to kind of look at uh, the chapter we looked at last week a little bit more and also um, chapters 21 and 22 together this morning. Now, you just pay attention, turn on the news. The world's a mess. (laughs) Lots of problems. Lots of bad news. Um, that's what you expect to hear, that's what you expect to see, but we're Christians. We're entering into the Advent season, and the first week of Advent reminds us the the first candle is the what candle? You weren't listening to the Burtons this morning. It is the hope candle, and uh, this is all filled with symbolism and meaning in order to help us remember the story Remember what it is we believe, what we just said there in the Apostles' Creed, what we confess there is not just this religious thing that we say once a week and then dispense with. It is what we say as Christians, we believe. This is our loyalty. This is our conviction. This is how we see the world. And central to all that is our belief that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus has brought hope to the world. Now, what we mean by that, what we say, what you should be meaning when we say that, is not just that Jesus has come to rescue us from this world, take us out to a disembodied heaven. The Christian message is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus has come to bring good news. He has come to bring salvation to a world that is a hot mess, as we know. I want to begin this morning, actually, from another story in the Old Testament. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. You don't don't have to turn there. Um, But here we find a real geopolitical situation. The king of Judah at the time was the king Asa, And he was under threat from the king of Israel. And uh, so what he did in order to 
um, overcome the attacking um, brothers from the land of Israel was he hired the king of Syria, um, paid him off with the treasures of the house of the Lord. So he stole from the temple treasury in order to bribe the king of Syria, uh, inviting him to break his covenant with the king of Israel. So Israel and Syria were in a covenant, and Israel was coming to attack Judah. So Asa takes the temple treasury, bribes the king of Syria to break his covenant with Israel and come to his aid. Uh, The plan succeeded, and because of the assistance of the king of Syria, the the king of Israel uh, ends his attack and goes back, leaving Judah alone. What happens in 2 Chronicles 16 right after that is that Asa was confronted by the prophet uh, Hanani and confronts him, rebukes him for relying on the king of Syria rather than on the Lord. Now, that's interesting. Here he was faced with a real geopolitical threat, and it seems like the tactic he used worked. I mean, he brought peace to his people, but the prophet rebukes him. And then he says these words in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. I'm not sure what exactly God wanted Asa to do to defend his people and to deliver them from the threat. I know that he did not want him to pay off a pagan king, bribe him with the treasury of the temple of the Lord to break his covenant with Israel in order to bring relief to Judah. That he didn't want to happen. I'm not sure what he did want to happen, but for sure he didn't want that to happen. And what I also know from this story is that the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is not a distant deity who's disconnected from the everyday events of his planet, of his earth that he made. He's very much concerned about his world. He's very much concerned about the news of the day. And God apparently does not want his world to run by bribery and broken promises. It's not the way of God. He's looking for a people to live differently. He's looking for a people to live by the ways of God that brings blessing, not just to their own people, but to the world. He's looking for a people who will bring flourishing to the earth. But in this world that we live in, we ask, can there be any other way than treachery, bribery, broken promises? Is there actually another way to live? And has anyone ever lived that way before? As we turn to Ezekiel 20 to 22, I have that thought in my mind because in these three chapters that we can take together because at the beginning of chapter 20, verse 4, and in the beginning of chapter 22, there's this repeated goal that God has of bringing to light, of exposing Israel's abominations. 
in these three chapters, we see the covenant promise of God, the covenant sword of God, and the covenant justice of God. Three ways in which God shows his determination to have his world run rightly. God doesn't settle for a world in which war and treachery and bribery is just the only way it could possibly be. God expects his world to be run differently. And so he reveals to us through his prophet his covenant promise, his covenant sword, and his covenant justice. Let's take a look at these three together this morning. So first, again, this is a review a bit from chapter 20. Pastor Jod preached through this chapter last week. But if we're going to get to 21, we kind of have to get a running start at it. Because chapter 20 tells us again about the covenant promise of God. You saw last week, and we looked at this chapter, that Ezekiel 20 consists of mostly a retelling of Israel's story. And by the way, if you're going to understand Jesus, you're going to have to get familiar with the story of Israel. Jesus shows up in the first century as the claiming to be the Messiah of Israel. And all of that only makes sense if we understand the story of Israel that's told in the Old Testament. This history of Israel is important because in the Bible, the story of Israel is the story of God's covenant promise. Not just to Israel, but through Israel to the entire earth. So let's take a look again here in chapter 20. I hope you have your Bibles open because I need to highlight a few verses for us. Take a look at Ezekiel 20, verses 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, he says in verse 6, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. So in this retelling of Israel's story, we see that God of his own sovereign will chose this people to be his people. Those words where he swore to them in Egypt, I am the Lord your God. You will be my people and I will be your God. But now read on to verse eight. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So God made a covenant promise. You will be my people. I will be your God. But the people rebelled against him. You're familiar with that part of the story. But it's important to note what Ezekiel is doing here in this chapter. All throughout chapter 20, which again we looked at uh, much closer last week. All throughout chapter 20 in this retelling, it's basically a parody of Israel's history. It's an outsider's perspective. Ezekiel is taking a look at Israel's story almost as if he's an outsider of Israel. As one commentator writes, with painstaking precision, incontrovertible logic, and deliberate skewing and distorting of the sacred traditions, Ezekiel turns his people's history on its head. 
Now, why would he do that? Why does he tell Israel's story from such a negative, critical perspective? And the answer is he does it to show how woefully short of the sacred call the nation had fallen. Instead of being characterized as living by God's standards, living on God's way, living by God's laws, Israel could only be characterized as a nation in rebellion. What then would, could God do? What would, what would be the only possible response? He does not tolerate this rebellion. Again, we saw this repeatedly throughout the chapter. But... He also will not revoke his covenant. And the reason why God will not turn away, will not break his promise, is because his name, his own reputation is on the line. Repeatedly throughout throughout chapter 20, when we would expect the story to be over, God says, for my name's sake, for the sake of my name, I will not revoke my covenant. I will not break my promise. God will be faithful to his covenant to his own. Now, if we jump down to verse 33, God makes this declaration. Pastor Jod said last week, this is one of the most uh, wonderful promises of restoration in all the Old Testament. But take a look how it begins in verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, Surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. (laughs) Now, don't read those verses and get in your mind that God is like your three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. I will be king. No, These words are an expression of God's covenant faithfulness. His promise-keeping declaration to his people. And we need to always remind ourselves that God's covenant-keeping with Israel is nothing less than his salvation to the world. Because it is through God's being king over Israel... And that means them faithfully serving and obeying him that God has promised to restore his broken world, to reverse the curse of Adam, to remove the thorns and thistles of sin's curse, and to put everything back to its proper order. That's what the Bible's all about. This is the good news it tells. And as we enter into the Advent season, Probably the most familiar of all Advent songs is the song, Joy to the World. And we read, we remember these words in one of the later verses. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. The promise of the Bible, the covenant promise of God is that God will be king over his people. He will put to an end their rebellion against him. And by doing so, God will bring salvation to the earth, to the cosmos, to all created things. So then when we come to verse 40, again in Ezekiel chapter 20, we see what the fulfillment of the covenant will look like. Look at it, verse 40. For on my holy mountain... The mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, I love this, 
all of them shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them. And there I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you. When I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers. Now, when we read of that promise, from Ezekiel's standpoint, Ezekiel and his contemporaries, this was clearly a promise that awaited in the future. But what about for you and me? Is this a promise that still awaits the future? Or is this a promise that God has brought to pass. When this time comes, God says, all the house of Israel, all of them will serve me in the land. And then God says, I will accept them. Now, when he says, I will require your contributions and your choices gifts, don't read it again like your temper tantrum three-year-old. Read this as a sovereign, gracious God who is now accepting the contributions of the people. He's now allowing them, because they're no longer in rebellion against them, to contribute to his everlasting kingdom. This is a great privilege, then, to be able to contribute, isn't it? To be able to be accepted as a fragrant offering. This is the, 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 the covenant bringing to, brought to fruition. This is the whole hope of the Bible. God says he will bring it to pass. This is his covenant promise. And when he does so, you notice what we read there, it will be a manifestation in the sight of the nations of God's holiness. This is what it will be like one day, God says through his prophet. And yet for you and me, the good news, the way we read this is to know that this day has already dawned. This day has already come. Now, Again, for Ezekiel and his contemporaries, that day was still in the future because God was not at this moment in the process of bringing his people together. He was in the process of scattering them to the winds. So there could be no debate that in Ezekiel's day, this was something that they were very much looking forward to in the future. And before there could be this kind of fulfillment of the covenant, before God could gather his people together and be king over them, there would have to be a sword. There would have to be a judgment that would need to fall f- first. This was not God turning away from his covenant. This is still part of the covenant. The covenant promise of God required the covenant sword of God. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, a new chapter begins at Ezekiel 20, verse 45. That's not really that important except for the fact that clearly there is a change in the subject. In Ezekiel 20, verse 45, and then again at chapter 21, verse 1, we find two complementary oracles. The first pictures a raging fire. The second, a brandished sword. In both of these oracles, moving from south to north through the land, the fire 
and the sword destroys the land and its people. Now, when Ezekiel tells this, these oracles, when he gives these prophecies, you can see in verse 49, chapter 20, that the people were not very pleased. They can't believe what Ezekiel is saying. God is going to destroy his land? God is going to annihilate his people? Surely God wouldn't go that far now, would he? The forest that he destroys at the end of chapter 20, by the way, a forest in the Negev, that's kind of a contradictory statement because the Negev is the southern portion of the land of Israel. It's the wilderness. There's nothing green there. The forest, though, is a name for the royal residence, the royal palace. You see this in 1 Kings 7, Jeremiah 21. So Ezekiel's audience knows what he's saying. He's saying that the God of Israel is about to cut off and bring to an end the royal line, the line of David. This seems completely impossible for the people of Israel, given the covenant promise. But read now in chapter 21, verse 7, at the end of this second oracle of this sword that goes from south to north, just like the fire does, in verse 7, uh, starting in verse 6, As for you, son of man, groan, with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan before their eyes. Verse 7, And when they say to you, Why do you groan? You shall say, Because of the news that it is coming. Every heart will melt, and all hands will be feeble. Every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. God tells Ezekiel to groan. It's another one of his sign acts. The people don't believe the story, so Ezekiel acts it out in front of them. This is far worse news than you could have possibly imagined. God is actually cutting off the royal line. God is destroying all of the people. God is tearing down his land. And the language that he uses here in chapter 21, verse 7, you might not remember this, but it's very similar to the language that was used earlier in the Old Testament. Let me read it to you. It's found in Joshua chapter 2. Remember that Joshua sends in some spies into the land, and a prostitute named Rahab takes them in, gives them cover, gives them shelter, and here's what she says to the men, Joshua 2, verse 9. She said to the men, I know that the Lord, that is the sacred name, the God of Israel, has given you the land. So she's one of the Canaanites dwelling in the promised land, and she says, I know that your God, the, the God of Israel, has given you the land. And she says this, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. And as soon as we heard it. Listen to these words. Our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So what Ezekiel is describing here, using the similar language of Rahab in Joshua 2, is a reverse conquest of the land of Canaan. Israel in Joshua 2 went into the land of Canaan, and from the south to the north, 
destroyed it, annihilated it, took over the land. God is now coming in, and he is doing the exact thing, exterminating the people, running them out of the land of Canaan. Just as Joshua told of the conquest of Canaan by Israel, so now Ezekiel is telling of the conquest of Israel by his own sword. We move on to chapter 21 later down in verse 18. Ezekiel has another sign act which shows what this sword of the Lord is going to be. He says in verse 19, As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land and make a signpost. Make it at the head of the way to a city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah into Jerusalem, the fortified. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways to use divination. So the sign act signifies a picture of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's standing at a fork in the road. One leads to the capital city of the Ammonites. The other leads to the capital city of Judah. And he's trying to decide where he should go. The picture that is presented here is trouble in the land. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, knows there's trouble, but he's trying to figure out where's the source. Where's this trouble coming from? Should he attack the Ammonites? Should he attack Jerusalem? Where is the trouble? And so, in, uh, as he performs this sign act, he tells us what happens. He says, in ver- in, you saw it there at the end of verse, tw- uh, ni- verse tw- 20, mark away for the sword. The king of Babylon, verse 21, stands at the head of the two ways. And look what he does. He uses divination. He shakes the arrows He consults the teraphim. He looks at the liver. Into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem. The historical situation that's presented, by the way, in these verses is realistic, even if it seems strange to you. (laughs) Using divination, you know, the shaking of the arrows, consulting the teraphim, looking at the liver. By the way, that last one, looking at the liver, it's the only time you find that. It's a strange thing in the Old Testament. Like, what is that? But actually, in extra-biblical evidence, in archaeological finds, this one is the most well-known, well-attested practice of divination by the ancient Babylonians. It's sort of an unintended proof in the Bible of its historical validity. It's a strange Thing, except archaeological evidence has found that this is exactly one of the ancient divination practices of the Babylonians. Verses 22 to 23, though, are where the surprise is found because in the divination, it reveals to Nebuchadnezzar that Jerusalem is the source of the problem. The trouble that's happening in the kingdom is coming from Jerusalem. That's why there's a surprise to them, verse 23. It will seem like a false divination because they, that is the the Judahites, the Jerusalemites, they have sworn solemn oaths. They are in covenant with Nebuchadnezzar. He's made a promise to them, and surely they're going to be loyal to him, right? But God, verse 23, brings their guilt to remembrance that they may be taken. 
They have broken their covenant. They've rebelled, and that's exactly what was taking place at this time in history. Babylon can't believe it. Israel certainly didn't believe it. They're the source of the problem. They are the ones that God's sword needs to come down upon. Aren't the problem the pagans in this world? Not us. Surely not us. Surely there are bigger problems in the world than God's own people, but not in God's eyes, because these are his covenant people. And because God's promise, his covenant promise, is to bring salvation to the earth, his own people in rebellion against him are where his sword must first come down. And so as we move into chapter 22, we see then that God, in keeping his covenant, in keeping his covenant, is seeking to maintain order, justice in his world. God, who made all things, will not tolerate injustice in his world, much less in his own people, whom he chose to bring justice to his world. So chapter 22, Ezekiel is again told to bring the city's abominations to light. Expose them all. If you jump down to verse 23 in chapter 22, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The problem in Israel Look where, it, look where it comes from. Verse 25, the conspiracy of her prophets in her midst. Verse 26, her priests have done violence. Not just the prophets, but her own priests have done violence, profaning his holy things, he says. Verse 27, her princes in her midst. In other words, her kingly rulers are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. Fallen prophets, fallen priests, fallen kings. And because of the failure of Israel's rulers, verse 29, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted them from the sojourner without justice. All the people have been brought into this corruption, and the sword of God must come down upon them. All throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament through the New, God demands holiness from his people. But the reason God demands holiness from his people is because God expects fruitfulness from them that blesses the world. God expects his people to be fully devoted to him because God intends through them to bring his blessing to the nations and to the world. And so God ruthlessly brings to light the abominations of his own people. And surely God's people today must also demand holiness from themselves, from their own leaders, and must hold them accountable. In our own denomination, of course, in the last year, we have seen horrible abominations covered up by the leaders in our own denomination. And this is not acceptable in God's world from God's people. These things must be brought to light and 
God's people must be held accountable. But what is this holiness that God expects? What is the, what is the unraveling of a society that God will not tolerate? As we look through chapter 22, back in verse 6, we get a picture. It begins with something as simple as verse 7. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. Honoring of previous generations. Honoring of parents. He requires of his people a sexual propriety. And the honoring of the vulnerable in any society. He expects a world in which women are safe in the presence of men. He expects a society where widows and orphans are taken in and not abandoned. He expects a society of people, verse 12, who do not forget the Lord, but remember to whom they belong. He expects a society, verse 13, where there is no dishonest gain, there's no bribery, there's no treachery. And God, he says, Ezekiel says at the end of chapter 22, sought for a man among them. Anyone who would build up the wall, stand in the breach before me for the land. Someone that God could look at who was a faithful prophet, a faithful priest, a faithful king, who would stand in the gap and spare God's people from utter annihilation, and he found none. And yet his promise to restore his people, to be king over them, lingered. For the next 500 years, even being brought back from captivity, even rebuilding a temple, the people of God wondered when the glory of God would return, when his people would again be established in an everlasting kingdom, never to be done away with again and bringing justice to the world. We waited, in fact, until the first advent and the coming of Israel's Messiah. And in John chapter 11, as Jesus is heading to the cross, there's an interesting account that takes place. In John 11, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Listen to this. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now, Listen to what they say in verse 48. This is John 11, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we let this man go on claiming to be Messiah and doing these things, people are going to believe that he's a king. And if that happens, Caesar's not going to put up with that. And we will lose our place and our nation. 
Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this, John says, of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation that Jesus would be the one who would stand in the gap. And verse 52 says, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you see the fulfillment? The covenant promise that God made to Israel, he found his man. He found one who would stand in the gap He found a perfect prophet, a perfect priest, and a perfect king who the sword of the Lord would fall upon, and thereby the nation would be brought together. And not just the nation, but all the people of God, scattered, scattered, it says, would be gathered into one because one man would stand in the gap. That's what we celebrate at Advent season. We celebrate the one who came and stood in the gap for us. We celebrate the one who has gathered all nations together now and is gathering all nations together wherever his gospel is preached, assembling them into one. You know, the disciples believed in Jesus. They knew he was the Messiah. They confessed that he was the Messiah. But even they could not imagine how it would be possible for the Messiah of Israel to die as a criminal. This was so hard to believe. Just like for Ezekiel's audience, it was hard to believe that God would bring his sword down upon them. But when God brought the sword down upon Jesus, when God brought to fruition his covenant promise, on the one hand, the mission of Jesus should have ended there. Dying as a common criminal under Pontius Pilate, under the thumb of Caesar, there is no reason why the Jesus movement should last. And yet here we are, celebrating once again another Advent season. The only explanation is because Jesus was the man who stood in the gap, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king who has assembled us together and now under loyalty to King Jesus In worship of King Jesus, God intends to bring fruitfulness to his broken world by his grace through his redeemed people. That's what we celebrate at Advent. Let us pray.